New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The diversity of life exists everywhere. It even surrounds our homes. Just look out your window and you'll see an abundance of nature. You'll see birds, flowers, spider webs, squirrels, moths flying around porch lights, lizards with their tails cut off by local cats, and much more. How might we observe these near-at-hand creatures that we so often overlook? We must go beyond our windows and take a walk in order to observe the generosity and wisdom that nature has to share with us. One creature we might notice are hummingbirds. With their jewel-like foliage, they are capable of the most unique and astonishing feats, such as flying backwards and even upside down. So the question before us is what can we do to help the other than human life on our planet. And to lead us in this dialogue is our guest, Cy Montgomery. Cy Montgomery is a naturalist, documentary scriptwriter, and author of many books, which include stories of her encounters with animals. During research for her books, films, and articles, Cy Montgomery has been chased by an angry silverback gorilla in Zaire and bitten by a vampire bat in Costa Rica. She's worked in a pit of 18,000 snakes in Manitoba, Canada, and has handled a wild tarantula in French Guiana. She holds an honorary doctorate from the University System of New Hampshire, and her many books have garnered numerous awards, and a few of them include The Good Pig, The Extraordinary Life of Christopher Hogwood, and the children's book, Becoming a Good Creature. Also, The Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. And The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings. Join us for the next hour as we explore some of nature's everyday mysteries with our guest, Cy Montgomery. I'm speaking with Cy at her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Sai, welcome. Thank you, Justine. I'm so thrilled to be with you. I'm thrilled to have you. And I, I'd love for us to go back to your early, most early encounter uh, with an animal. And that was a little puppy named Molly. Can you share a story about Molly? 
Well, yeah, gosh, Molly was my my first great mentor, I think, who came to me when I was about three. And I don't have a lot of memories of my early childhood because um, of a head injury, actually. But I know that as soon as I could speak, I communicated to my parents my existential problem. And that was, I was not a little girl. I was a horse. My mother was very worried and went to the pediatrician who assured her that I would grow out of it, which I did when I realized I was really a dog. But then I still had that problem. Everyone wanted to teach me how to be a little girl, and I had no interest in this. I wanted to be a dog. Well, I was about three by the time I got my mentor, Molly, a Scottish Terrier puppy. And as you know, Scottish Terriers, they think they're very large dogs. They've got huge hearts. They're very brave. They're, they're fierce. They're even the highly trained ones are somewhat feral. And that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be her. I wanted to see in the dark. I wanted to hear the sounds that clearly she could hear, but I could not. I wanted to run fast. And so I apprenticed myself to her and I watched everything she ever did with rapt reverence. And what I always dreamed of doing was essentially running away, living in a hollow tree with Molly and having her introduce me to all these other wild animals. And although Molly is with me in spirit and not in the flesh, because of her, I have been able to realize my dream because that's what I do. Wow, you got your calling really, really early uh, and led into it with Molly. Yes. I was really blessed. Yes, definitely. Let's, um, let's talk about uh, some of the birds that you've come across, uh, starting with some of the largest in the world. I think oh, the yeah. emus and cassowaries in mm. uh, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't even realize, well, people know the ostrich. That's, you know, a flightless, really impressive flightless bird that stands taller than a tall man. And, uh, but some people aren't aware that there's some other uh, birds in that same group called the Strathiaform birds. And I was lucky enough to select again as my teachers three adolescent emus in Australia, wild emus, who kind of showed me. I knew what I wanted to do with my life from Molly, but I didn't know what the path was to live that life. And it was three wild emus who I studied while living in a tent for six months in Australia, South Australia in the outback. They were the ones who showed me this is the path and this is how you do it. And I had actually made everyone think I was insane. I had been working at a wonderful newspaper. My work had won awards. I had gotten nice raises. I had wonderful people around me. I loved my editors. I loved my readers. I loved where I lived in rural New Jersey. I had an opportunity to essentially quit my job and work for no pay in the middle of the outback for as long as I wanted, and I could have free food. And the minute I found out I could do that, I quit my job and moved to the tent in the outback. And um, 
discovered these three emus would let me into their lives. And to my amazement, even though the emus stand beside the kangaroo on Australia's coat of arms, people didn't really know what they did all day. No one had really done an intensive study of, well, what do they do all the time? So I did that. It was a pilot study and I absolutely loved it. And after those six months, when I came back to the United States, I knew I could never struggle into pantyhose again and work in an office and have someone else tell me what to do. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to go out and find these teachers, these animal teachers around the world and essentially throw myself at their scaly or clawed feet or fins or arms um, and tell them, you know, just teach me, beg of them to teach me. And that's so, what I've done. So what what were some of the lessons that you learned from emus? Well, emus were the ones that really showed me this is how you do it. By studying, by studying them, I was just kind of making stuff up while I went along. I I went, I had gone to college and I, I had triple majored and I one of my majors, I, I was unable to add the fourth major of biology. Um, but I'd, I'd taken some biology, but I never had any formal training in how to observe animals and record their behavior. And the emus essentially taught me how to do that. And what I would do um, was for about 30 minutes, I had a checklist and every 30 seconds, I would just look up and record what they were doing on the checklist. And then the 30 minutes were up and I would write a narrative of what they were doing. And then the so tell me, minutes. tell me, Sai, do, do they mostly just walk around and forage for food or do they play or do they interact with one another? What, what are oh, some yes. of their... They definitely, I mean, foraging for food, um, as, as you know, entails a great deal of work. I mean, it's like our work. Um, I peck it keys on a keyboard when I'm writing a book, but it's far more complex than, than that sounds. And it's not random at all. Um, so I did record their movements and where they were going and what they were eating at what time. And they probably were eating the most nutritious stuff that was just happening to be available at that time. And they probably memorized like, oh, you know, if I want to eat the mistletoe, it's going to be um, giving its seeds at this time. And if I want to be eating the wild mustard, well, it's going to be up at this time. But they did also play. They had a sense of humor that I was unaware of. I watched them tease the ranger, the park ranger's dog, which they thought was hilarious. And it showed me that they also understood exactly how long the chain was that the dog was on. Because they would run up to this dog and they would kick the air with their great long feet and their little stubby wings. They, they would put them forward and they'd take their periscope necks and throw them up, throw them down. And the dog would be going nuts and he'd be straining against the chain. And, and they did this for several minutes. Oh. And then they walked away and sat down and preened. Just like you would, you know, <laughs> kind of file your nails after something like that. It was hilarious. <laughs> oh I also goodness. got to see how they they recognized me. And um, they treated me differently than people who they didn't recognize. And so that, that 
I wanted to make it easy for them to do this. I did what Jane Goodall did when she was studying the chimpanzees of Gombe, and that was to dress the same every day, move humbly into their lives only to the extent that they were comfortable. I wore a red bandana. Birds have excellent color vision, as you know. Um, every day so they could identify me at a, at a great distance and my father's green army coat. And eventually they would let me essentially just walk right beside them. I could, oh, I could see, you know, clearly the pupils of their eyes and the eyelashes on their eyes and the details of their toenails. Um, they would let me be with them while they sat and preened, while they fed. It was, it was a really oh, that's- thing. That is so thrilling. That just must say, and it, and it reminds me in one of your older books, um, The Curious Naturalist, Nature's Everyday Mysteries, there's a place in there about hand feeding wild birds, like in mm. your backyard. Yeah. I, I just loved reading that because it, it showed a way that birds will actually land on your hand. Yes. It's so wonderful. And it's a great exercise for children to help them stay still and help them concentrate because the payoff is huge. Exactly. Exactly. So, but it takes some time and patience. Yes. But you know, you're sitting outside in a beautiful place, watching the birds while you're doing it. Exactly. You know, you're standing on one foot in a, pit of fire ants. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I want to tell our listeners I'm here with a naturalist, um, Cy Montgomery, and she's the author of The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, SyMontgomery.com. And it's she spells her first name S-Y, SyMontgomery.com. Or you could get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with naturalist Cy Montgomery, and we're talking about, well, right now we're talking about birds. We'll talk about other animals as well. Let's talk about the hummingbird. It just does amazing things. Now, we're going from the big, big, big birds, uh, the emus, to the tiniest, smallest bird, the hummingbirds. So let's talk about hummingbirds and your relationship with them. Well, I, I like everyone else, just love hummingbirds. Um, God does too, obviously, because there's 330 or more species of them. And as you mentioned, the smallest bird in the world. 
is in fact a species of hummingbird and it it's only two inches long and weighs less than a dime it's the bee hummingbird of cuba um but you know as as tiny as they are they have all these superpowers that really just turn you on the fastest bird in the world is also a hummingbird if you account for body size you know we all hear about the peregrine falcon but if you're thinking about body lengths a male Allen's hummingbird showing off to a female can dive from the sky 60 feet per second. That's 385 body lengths per second, which even bests the space shuttle, if you're talking about body lengths per second. And just everywhere you look at a hummingbird, they're just these staggering little miracles. And my latest book, which just came out, The Hummingbird's Gift, is the story of how I was privileged to work with this amazing angel of a person, Brenda Sherburn LaBelle, who is a hummingbird rehabilitator. And we rescued and raised two tiny infant hummingbirds who had just hatched out of eggs as small as navy beans. When they were born, they were the size of bumblebees. They were only 10 and 12 days old by the time I met them. And to feed them, to let them grow up, to rule the sky, this was an act of resurrection. We were able to participate in a miracle. And this slender little book tells about that miracle. And at a time that all of us are feeling a little vulnerable and battered as we come out of the whole COVID-19 disaster, it's a good thing to be reminded that miracles are all around us. And that if we can raise a tiny, delicate, infant hummingbird, and if a hummingbird can grow to be the fastest bird in the world and one of the longest migrants in the world. If a hummingbird that small can literally rule the sky, then maybe we can heal our sweet green fractured world. May it be so. And you say that they migrate, like they migrate, these tiny birds migrate like 2,000 miles. In the ones that you raised, Sai, these babies, you have to feed them, what, every 20 minutes? Yes, exactly. It is such a a dedication. It takes such deep dedication and perseverance to say, okay, I'm going to be awake every 20 minutes. I guess you took turns with your co-author. Brenda Sherburn LaBelle. She was the actual rehabilitator. She showed me how to feed them and I helped care for them. But you're so right. I mean, every 20 minutes from dawn to dusk, and boy, you had to get it just right. Because if you didn't feed them enough, of course, they would starve. If you didn't feed them the right combination of foods, because many people don't realize that hummingbirds to survive don't just need nectar. They need hundreds of bugs every day. I didn't know that. I know most people don't know that. And they and un, unwisely, I mean, one of the things that happens, which is so sad, is that people are feeding their hummingbirds nectar and then they're having 
you know, like Chemlon come out and someone's going to spray for insects. Well, as you know, insecticides might as well be called avicides because they kill birds. And the best thing in the world for hummingbirds is the delicious protein they get from the bugs that are in your compost pile, for example. So we had to go out and get these hundreds of bugs every day and squish them up with a mortar and pestle and mix up this, this special combination of enzymes and uh, all kinds of special nutrients had to be just right. And we had to feed them the right amount because not enough they would starve, but worse, if we fed them too much, they would pop. Oh my gosh. Now tell me, how did you find the bugs? I mean, I think you mostly work with gnats, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, fruit flies actually. And um, mostly um, Brenda's sainted husband, Russ, was in charge of going to the compost pile with a net and netting these yummy, uh, really bloody, (laughs) delicious bugs, but they, they really enjoyed them. They enjoyed the fresh bugs better than you can actually get frozen bugs. You wouldn't believe the stuff you can get in the mail, (laughs) but um, they preferred the fresh bugs, which we would grind up with the mortar and pestle in the morning. You know, most people are grinding up their coffee beans, but we were grinding up fruit flies for our baby hummingbirds and feeding them with a syringe. You know, uh, those people who do put out hummingbird feeders, I'm very aware that we have to be careful about that. We have to be careful about the formula we use. We have to be careful about cleaning the feeder. We have to be careful about um, all sorts of things. Can you talk about that? Because I think that it's important for people to realize. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Justine. This is one of the wonderful things that we can do for hummingbirds is offer them this nectar. But one, we have to get the amount of sugar and water right. Many people think like, oh, you know what? I'm going to make mine extra sweet and the hummingbirds are going to really like that. And they will, just like your child would really rather eat chocolate chip cookies and ice cream and forget about, you know, the, the broccoli and pasta salad. You need to have the amount right. And you need to change it regularly because it can grow mold, which can kill them. You wouldn't want to feed your your husband or your your child moldy food. You wouldn't want to give them botulism. I mean, you'd never think of that. Well, the same thing. Too often we do things like, oh, you know what, this moldy bread, I'm going to give it to the geese. Well, that can kill the geese. So give them good food. Another thing is that some hummingbird feeders and and, um, hummingbird nectar kits come with a red dye for the the nectar. And A, you don't need it to attract the hummingbird, but B, the red dye can eat through their feathers. Mm. And you start eating through someone's feathers and that bird has to make a 2000 mile migration. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not going to help the birds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we want to help birds, we need to kind of know what we're, what we're doing. Most of the stuff that you're taught about injured birds is wrong. Remember how people used to say, if you find a bird on the ground, don't ever touch it. Well, 
if it's a healthy baby bird, leave it there. But if it's fallen out of the nest, for God's sake, put it back in the nest. The mothers and fathers do not smell human smell on them at all. And they will be visibly delighted if you replace their infant in the nest. These uh, these little birds, tiny little birds, they are also fierce. I mean, they're territorial and they're fierce and you can watch them, their fierceness on display when they're protecting their territory, right? Yes, they think every bit of nectar is theirs. And if, you're, if you've got tons of hummingbirds, get some extra nectar feeders. They don't like to share their nectar at all. They'll chase everybody else away. And this is actually why a lot of young fledgling hummingbirds die. They're just chased away from the good nectar by the older ones. Right. They spend more of, the, more of their time defending their nectar than actually drinking it. When I used to put out hummingbird feeders, uh, I noticed that ants would want to get to the sugar in it. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I put Vaseline on the rope that the uh, feeder was hanging from. And oh, the, smart. And the ants couldn't get to the feeder then that way. Well, you're a genius. That's yeah. really good. You know who else comes to the to the feeder that you kind of don't want to see is yellow jackets. Yeah. Um, uh, the yellow jackets usually will not bother the adult um, hummingbirds, but they will kill nestlings. You would not believe all the stuff that will kill baby hummingbirds. Well, praying mantis. I was shocked to find that out. Oh, my gosh. And, I mean, trout will leap out of brooks and, and eat them. I mean, it, the things that can happen to hummingbirds, it's just a wonder that we have them on Earth at all. And are they, uh, I I think I read that they're only indigenous to uh, North world. and South America, or are they all over the world? No, you're correct. They are only living in our, you know, the, the New World, North and South America. We are so blessed. And when the Spaniards first came to South America and saw hummingbirds, they called them resurrection birds because they believed that to be that perfect and shiny and new looking, surely they died at night and were made new every day. What are some of the other myths like if you, if you're visited by a hummingbird, it might have some sort of significance. Well, actually, um, the lady who brought the orphan baby hummingbirds to Wild Care, the rehabilitation people who gave them to to Brenda, um, she firmly believed, and this could be true, that her totem animal was a hummingbird. It always seemed like a hummingbird would appear to her at key junctures in her life. And because these birds seem so magical, there's lots of stories like that about them. And one of them, uh, the scientists completely believed the Latin name for the family of hummingbirds means without feet. Now, of course, hummingbirds have feet. Early scientists didn't see them because they didn't see them perch. And they thought they didn't even need feet because they hovered in the air. 
Exactly, exactly. And I want to say, just before we started this interview, our engineer, Lou Jetson, said he just saw a hummingbird right right as we start to go into this interview. So uh, they, are, they are alive and well and, and helping us out. I'm here with Cy Montgomery. She's a naturalist, and she is the author of many, many, many books. Uh, which you'll want to just look them up because they're so interesting, all of her adventures with animals. And the newest one is The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with naturalist Cy Montgomery. She's the author of The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings. And Cy, you have another book about birds, don't you? I did a book called Birdology. Birdology. Uh, Yep, which was kind of chapter by chapter trying to get at what makes a bird a bird. And The Hummingbird's Gift, most of that book is taken from a chapter in birdology. It now has gorgeous color photos, which were not present in birdology to my great sorrow, um, taken by uh, Tia Strombeck. I've done some other books on birds too. Um, With Tia, I did a book on the California condor Um, and its comeback. This was a, a book in the Scientists in the Field series. I did a book on the probably the rarest bird in the world, at least at that time, the the kakapo, the uh, giant flightless parrot of New Zealand, of which there were only 90 on the planet, all living on a tiny island off the coast of New Zealand, one of whom attempted to mate with my head. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, you wonder why they are endangered well. (laughs) They're not too smart. (laughs) Well, that one, I mean, poor guy. His his name was Sirocco, and um, he'd been raised by humans. They are so rare that every kakapo has uh, like a nest watcher to make sure that predators don't get the nest, that things go well with the eggs. And some of the eggs are actually taken into incubators, and they are... um, raised by humans and the the good thing about this is that nothing bad is going to eat them or injure them or hurt them they're not going to get sick but they're going to be a little confused about their identity so this one had an existential crisis and uh it would sexually assault anyone who came (laughs) near his display area and they're nocturnal parrots so all of the humans stayed in this this little bunkhouse. And if you needed to visit the loo at night, you had to go out to the, you know, the dunny, go out to the outhouse. And wisely, for someone who wanted a mate, this giant parrot had put his lecking area where he's supposed to impress females 
right between the bunkhouse and the loo. Oh. And so if if you needed to make a visit, you were going to be sexually assaulted by a giant <laughs> parrot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, these are priceless stories, priceless stories. Now, I know that I mentioned in the introduction um, that you met a silverback gorilla. Uh, can you briefly describe what that was like? Oh, yeah. Well, I went on um, Mountain Travel's first uh, expedition of layman into the Virunga volcanoes to meet mountain gorillas. And this was, oh gosh, it was the year after Diane Fossey died. And um, we went to Rwanda and we went to Zaire. Well, in Zaire, they didn't, which is now Congo, um, they, they hadn't really habituated gorillas to being visited by humans. So we were kind of thrashing around in the jungle and I see this person running toward me, panic-stricken. Well, that can't be good. So I look to see what is his problem. And he's being chased by an angry silverback gorilla, which can, you know, they can weigh 400 pounds and they have, they can bite you. I mean, they could easily tear you in half like a piece of paper if they wanted to. They're not known to be aggressive, but this gorilla felt that his territory was being invaded. And the poor guy who was running away did not know gorilla etiquette, but I did. And so I can share with your listeners what they should do if they find themselves in the predicament of being chased by a giant 400-pound uh, angry gorilla. This is what you do. You do not run. You turn around and you do not look at the gorilla. You look at the ground and you hit the ground as if you're bowing to a king. And the gorilla will then realize that you mean no harm, that you're not being aggressive. Looking right into a gorilla's face, that stare is considered aggressive according to their culture. So instead, bow as if to a king. And what the gorilla did was he stopped. He stood up on his hind legs. He pocked his chest. He dropped his jaw, let out a frightening roar, basically saying, so, okay, now you know who's boss. And then he dropped to all fours and calmly led us to meet his family. Oh, what a precious, precious moment. And fortunate that you knew what to do to drop down. And, and I think you don't even show your hands, do you? You kind of cup your hands. Yeah, you just want to make yourself look as unaggressive yeah. as possible. Because yeah. that's what you are. And I have found watching any wild animal that make yourself small, show that you mean no harm and, and think of, you know, what might frighten or disturb that animal. Don't do that. <laughs> and a lot of what we do naturally and particularly what children do naturally, it's exactly the wrong thing. Children have the wonderful curiosity that can focus their, their attention on animals, but too often they're running around and making a lot of noise. So when I uh, make friends with kids who are interested in learning how to approach animals, the first thing we work on together to make animals like them is being quiet, being small, being patient, cultivating that ability and that humility. And then animals will approach you. 
You know, one of the things that I do um, when meeting a new dog, um, I, I don't I don't go to just try and pet their head or anything like that. I I put out the back of my hand and I let the dog smell my hand. Yeah, and that's, that's a very first. polite. That's very polite of you. Yeah, a lot of people think that it, dogs want to be petted on their head. Well, they really don't. I mean, the reason that often children are taught to pet a dog's head is so they don't like grab his ears or pull his tail or something. Dogs don't like being pet, patted on the head. They dislike it, actually. They wouldn't mind being stroked, but they would much rather that you touch first their chest and not their head. They would much rather like like you do they'd like to get a nice sniff of of who you are it's so funny my friend um, the other day was saying how you know we all have different scents that we you know they have a she has a special perfume that she likes and I told her that I'm like out of soap and stuff because I haven't been traveling in a year and that's how I got well gosh don't people recognize your signature scent and I told her that, well, my husband can recognize me by sight by now. He's learned that. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Very good. What about, uh, I mentioned in the intro that uh, 18,000 snakes in a pit in Manitoba, Canada. Oh, what yeah. was that, that about, Sai? Well, I mean, first of all, once you get past the 18,000 snakes, Manitoba, Canada, that seems awfully far north to have the largest snake pit in the world. Everyone thinks, surely it must be the Amazon. Surely it must be the Congo. But no, the largest pit of snakes in the world is up in frosty Manitoba. It's at the Narcisse Snake Dens. And the snakes there are all harmless, darling, small, red-sided garters. And the reason that they're in this giant pit is that it is so cold that they have to do the snake version of hibernation. They go into these limestone sinks, their blood becomes as thick as mayonnaise, and they stack like cordwood in these limestone sinks for the winter. But then in the spring, when everyone starts to wake up, well, it's the most amazing thing. You can hear them slithering before you see them. And when you first see this pit of writhing snakes, your eyes, well, your eyes register it, but your brain doesn't have anywhere to put that. <laughs> I mean, you went there to see the snakes, but you almost can't believe it, that yes. the whole ground is moving with beautiful, harmless, darling little snakes. And you're never going to see that many snakes anywhere else in your life. You are lucky to see a snake. Um, on any given day, one snake. I mean, I right. go looking for snakes and I don't see them. You know, you're lucky to see, you know, 50 snakes in the summer, but to, to be with 18,000 snakes. And I was able to work with this wonderful guy. I'm, I'm still friends with him, Bob Mason. Um, and he has studied the largest snake pit in the world and studied and discovered that the snakes they all come back to hibernate in their favorite pit. There's several of these. And they they oh. all go, you know, to the one that they were at last year. And then how do they find their way back to the ponds where they're going to eat frogs and stuff like this? He found the secret of that. He discovered for the first time in the world, he found that reptiles 
have pheromones, these chemical signals that were well known in insects. This is how moths, for example, find males and females, but snakes have them too. And that they aren't just used as sex hormones, but they're used to, to navigate, to find the trails of other snakes. He's a brilliant, wonderful guy, and he is still studying the the wonderful snakes at the Narcisse Snake Dens in Manitoba, Canada. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. It sounds beyond imagining in some ways. I'd love to talk about spiders. Um, these, I know that you have met a wild tarantula in French Guiana, and uh, spiders are all around us. I mean, we live with uh, probably thousands within our own homes that we're not even aware of. I'm, I'm not sure I made that number up, but I know a lot. Uh, they're kind of invisible, but they're here. And so I, it seems like human beings have a natural um, instinct to recoil from spiders, so let's talk about spiders and their importance in the natural environment. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you are right. It seems to be, a, a, and snakes too. Um, this has been tested and apparently it's very easy. You're not born with a fear of snakes or spiders, but it's extremely easy to turn on. There, there had been experiments in the past, which were actually pretty terrible in which experimenters taught children to be afraid of different things and you can teach children to be afraid of a popsicle or a or a you know or a flower but it took many many more pairings of the popsicle and the flower with a bad stimulus to turn on the fear of the popsicle and the flower than it would for a snake and that makes sense because human beings evolved in africa and um, our fellow primates as they're living in the in the trees, are sometimes beset by poisonous spiders and snakes. Here in North America, we have very few poisonous spiders and snakes, and it's easy to avoid them. Most spiders are beneficial um, and harmless. Most snakes are too. We'll talk more about this in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Cy Montgomery. She's the author of The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings. And I do want to mention her children's book because I love it so much. It's called Becoming a Good Creature. I love this book. So it's good for, for children and adults. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with naturalist Cy Montgomery, and she's the author of The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings, as well as many, many other books. Cy, you know, in in this time, we've just come out of a year of isolation and in the pandemic, COVID pandemic of 2020 and into 2021. And I remember seeing these videos, these wonderful YouTubes where people were taking videos once the the streets were uh, just empty of cars and people and everybody was in their house. And suddenly there there are mountain lions uh, walking on stone walls and you, you see kangaroos hopping down the street I, it just it just did my heart good it really did and i know that in your book the curious naturalist you talk about how there were escaped kangaroos or wallabies oh, smaller yeah. kangaroos in in massachusetts yes tell us tell us tell us about these these kangaroos in massachusetts well um i i did a a whole chapter on strange things that you might see. Um, most of the time, people are reporting like, oh, I saw a mountain lion, and it turns out it's somebody's house cat. Or, you know, geez, we, we recently had a, a whale skull um, wash up on a, on a beach, and people were supposed to guess what it was. And people were saying, obviously, it's a laboratory experiment. You know, but sometimes people are right when they see the impossible. And one day, people looked out their window, and it was actually a wallaby, uh, you, um, which is a kind of kangaroo. There's 52 or 54 species of, of kangaroos, including several wallabies. And uh, it was escaped. I think it was escaped from a zoo. But sometimes you see these animals, and the zoo is not missing anything. It's <laughs> someone's pet that got out. Or it's some animal that just was blown off course. There was a flamingo spotted in Vermont one time. And people are like, right, it's one of those long flamingos. But no, it was a real flamingo because it got up and it flew away and it was just blown off course by an aberrant wind. So I guess the moral of that story is keep your eyes open because you just never know. You never know. You never know. You know, I told our listeners we're going to come back to spiders. I just remembered that. And and I'd like to come back to spiders because they are are so... uh, pervasive and important in the whole natural order of things Mm. you say i'd love for you to say more about the importance of spiders and how we might live in communion oh i think you're hearing from thurber right now thurber okay (laughs) welcome thurber to the program well listeners here's my little guy (laughs) oh sweet is this son also a scottish terrier no, he's a border collie. He's our third border collie, and um, he's actually a star in uh, the book you mentioned, "Becoming a Good Creature," and "How to Be a Good Creature," a book I wrote for adults. He's the the last chapter in both of those books. He's a wonderful teacher and mentor to me. How wonderful! Back to spiders. I'm sorry. Spiders have these superpowers that we ignore or are just unaware of. For example, their skeletons are on the outside and many of them can pull out of their bodies a material that is 
softer and stretchier than silk, but stronger than steel, which is spider silk. They have senses we don't have. Many of them can taste with their feet. And many spiders, if they hurt their foot, if they break their leg, well, they just pull it off, eat it, and grow a new one. So they can do amazing things. But because they're small, we tend to overlook them. I wrote a book about tarantulas for young people because if you've got a spider that weighs, for example, a quarter pound, you're not going to ignore that spider. <laughs> no, say <And> not. <laughs> I went with the world's top tarantula expert, Sam Marshall, to a place he considers the tarantula capital of the world in French Guiana in South America. And we met the Goliath bird eater spider who does not typically dine on birds. They'd rather eat worms, but it's such an impressive beast. I mean, the thing is big as your hand. It would did you, did you actually hold it in your hand? That's um, a species that's likely to bite and has a bad venom. It won't kill you. None of the 500 species of tarantulas on earth have venom that will kill a healthy adult person. Um, but the ones that I have held many times, I've actually held a number of of tarantulas. Um, this was a, a, a vicularia, a, a, um, a pink toe spider, pink toe tarantula, which looks like it just had a French pedicure. Beautiful, dark, hairy looking beauty with little pink toes. And they are gentle and they, they won't bite you. I mean, if you do something really stupid, I suppose you could make it bite you. But total gentle, sweet creature. And there's other species of tarantulas that if you know the species, you know, oh, that one really isn't going to bite, as long as you're gentle. You know, there's um, the, the spiders that make webs. There's a um, small spider, not, no bigger than a freckle. I, oh. I, it's called a Wendelgarda, I think. Ah. And it, it's, it puts a single strand across a running stream and uh, it's like a tightrope. And then it has all these strands that hang down from that, that attach, the, uh, the, these strands attach themselves to this running water. And, you know, there is, uh, humans cannot achieve with our best super glue how these, these um, strands attach themselves to water. And what they're doing is they're searching for um, water gliders for the oh, spider. So spiders are amazing in in the way that they they react and and make webs and and gather there and forage for food. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different ways they do it. Exactly. You're mentioning um, the wolf spiders that you that you know. Oh and yes. These are stalk and ambush predators like cheetahs, and and yet you know we ignore these wonders until. We're turned on to them. I just want to say about wolf spiders, they look ferocious. They don't mm. build webs. They look ferocious. And I learned where I lived before, there were quite a few in our home. I learned to live with them, to coexist, because they would they would eat all the mosquitoes and things that I didn't like. So yeah. uh, we, we learned to coexist with them and not to be afraid. It takes some work to not be instinctually repelled. Well, Native Americans had sense enough to realize that if you covered your your baby's crib with a spider web, it would catch the harm in the air. 
And what they were doing was protecting their children from malaria. Yeah, right. Because it would catch yeah. the mosquitoes that transmitted malaria. Right, right. So there is the, uh, another another animal that is very, very interesting. I'm going back to birds are crows. <laughs> they're masterful mimics and inventive pranksters. They they're calculating thieves, um, and and they they can be pets and they have a vocabulary. They they can, you can teach them to talk and even uh, they've been known to to mimic uh, calling the dog. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they drive dogs crazy, don't they? If they're pets, yes. and they can count. I mean, they can do so many amazing things. It's funny too, um, crows that have wild crows who have befriended humans will bring them presents. And there, there was this one little girl who um, had offered food to a crow and this crow would show up every few days with some lovely little shiny object, somebody's earring or you know, a, a pretty bottle cap or, or a, 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 piece, a pretty piece of glass or, or a little flower. And I think that is so generous and understanding of them that they too like little glittery, shiny things and they figured this out. And another friend of mine, oh, who I love so much, um, her name is Diane Taylor Snow and she appears in a lot of my early books. She raised a baby crow and let the crow go. Well, it's now 40 years later and she is still finding gifts that that crow hid in the pages of books in her library, on the shelves that she never goes to. She's finding half of a pair of earrings that she lost, you know, decades before. They love to hide stuff. And it's just so great that Crow Baby is still giving Diane gifts. Oh, I love it. I just love hearing these stories and how we we can be more cognizant of all the livingness that that's among us. If we just open our eyes, you in these last minute, do you, do you have any advice as to how we can be our own naturalist in our own backyard? Well, I think look at everything new beginner's mind. If you didn't know that spiders were among us, would you believe there's a, little tiny creature smaller than a than a dime or a quarter that you know has a skeleton on the outside that can taste with its feet and uh can can pull this amazing material out of its own body to make to make a web you wouldn't believe that if you found that on another planet you would be so excited and yet here they are and they have so much to teach us and the most important thing i think that animals can teach us is compassion Mm. to show them show them compassion and notice their own compassion. Sai, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Justine. It's lovely to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. I've been speaking with Sai Montgomery. She's the author of The Hummingbird's Gift, Wonder, Beauty, and Renewal on Wings. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, SaiMontgomery.com. She spells her first name, Sai, S-Y, SaiMontgomery.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3734. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.